HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. In The Drink is the show that brings you the most interesting beverage professionals from sommeliers and winemakers. You know, we're really focusing more on wine these days, and we have a great wine director, a great beverage director in-house today. Um, His name is Jared Roth. Uh, And before we get started, I do want to give a little bit of a plug to uh, my own wines, uh, Anona Wine. Um, You can find more about them at AnonaWine.com. I make uh, some great organic wines in Italy. You can find them at uh, such great establishments as Fowler & Wells. Oh, wait a second. Jared is the beverage director at Fowler & Wells. Welcome to the studio. It's good to have you today. Nice plug. Thank you. Uh, I figured I'd plug both of us at the same time. Why not? Um, Jared has a huge amount of, uh, of experience at some of the best restaurants here uh, in New York, including Hearth, including Gotham Bar and Grill, including Bobby Flay's Bar Americaine. And now he is the beverage director, as I said, at Fowler & Wells, which might be uh, the prettiest restaurant in the prettiest hotel uh, in, in, you know, in New York. Uh, it's like just a stunning place. Congratulations uh, Thanks, on the opening. Uh, re- you guys recently opened, right? Yeah, we got all of the spaces uh, up and running last fall. Uh, The ballroom, which is kind of the focal point of the hotel itself, uh, with the story nine-story atrium, opened up uh, in September of last year, just after Labor Day. Uh, And then the dining room, Fowler & Wells, we opened in late October. And then all of the meal periods finally came online earlier this year with the inclusion of brunch and lunch and all those things. So yeah, I did want to sell you short. Actually, you're, you're the beverage director for the uh, for the bar room as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so we how does that work out? Uh, we um, Tom Clickio's company, Crafted Hospitality. Uh, we do all the food and beverage for the hotel, the two uh, dining spaces, the ballroom and Fallon Wells, plus the four soon to be six event spaces and all the in room dining. So. 
the kitchen team oversees the culinary aspect, um, and then I oversee the beverage components uh, to it. And I, I don't do it all on my own. I do have some phenomenal help uh, there as well. Yeah, I noticed a familiar name. I was looking at your wine list. Claire Paparazzo is working with you. I didn't realize that. She's an old friend. Yeah, Claire's, uh, she came on board in November um, through a connection with our uh, director of operations. They worked together at Dirty French, um, and she kind of fell into our laps, wasn't really uh, digging her current role, and just kind of wanted to come on board and, and be part of uh, a, a team and, and contribute to something pretty new and leave her thumbprint on it. And she's been fantastic to have. Um, I mean, we've achieved pretty early success with our service and, and beverage service uh, in part uh, due to her experience. So it's been, it's been And for those cool. of you guys who aren't familiar with Claire, she also has an impressive resume, including uh, being the wine director of Blue Hill in the city. So... Uh, just an impressive wine team. Uh, she actually uh, opened the original Blue Hill at Stone Barns as wow. their events director. Uh, and then when she left, I think they replaced her with like three different people. Jeez. Yeah. You need three people. And not to give Brooks Frazier and Jamel Freeman, uh, you know, not, the, the, your other two wine captains who I, who I don't know uh, so well, but I'm sure they're equally as awesome, too. They are. Jamel uh, came to us through an old hearth connection through my buddy Nick Ferrante, who's at the Breslin um, uh, Jamel came on board in October uh, and has been a huge part of the team, has shown you know great growth and strides. Um, but I, I will say that the most important person on that page is definitely Brooks Frazier, uh, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, and I was able to uh, entice her to leave Gramercy Tavern and to come on board as basically the number two um, you know, de facto assistant beverage director. And, and she's uh, incredibly talented, very organized, um, is is <clears throat> very graceful on the floor and, and runs, uh, you know, service from the beverage mm-hmm. standpoint on most nights. My role there is is during the day, very administrative as far as beverage goes. But once service begins, it's it's much more managerial as far as overseeing the service as a whole. Uh, so to have people like Claire Brooks and Jamel to just take care of the beverage component is a huge relief. Yeah. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about your past experience and uh, you've worked for some just major important chefs, uh, uh, Bobby Flay, Alfred Portale, uh, Marco Canora, and now Tom Colicchio. Um, And most of these uh, chefs, I guess with the exception of Alfred Portale is really focused on that one restaurant. um, And is I think probably Gotham has more New York Times stars than any restaurant ever, I imagine. Uh, the consistent, like... It's got to be up there. I think uh, it's got 15, five three-star reviews in its lifetime. is pretty amazing. unheard of. Um, but with, with each of these restaurants that, that you worked at, were you able to kind of figure out or distill what a management philosophy is um, that maybe came from the chef or from the group? Uh, or a lot of times was it individual to the restaurant itself, and then how does that affect uh, the way that you manage these, these uh, very talented professionals that you're working with? I would say the the managerial component um, at its core started with my dad and growing up and mm. someone who um, was a, a VP at a, a company that he and my family uh, have owned and, and had in the family for 70 plus years. And what kind of company is that? What do they do? Uh, it's a business-to-business uh, printing, laminating, binding uh, product company called Spiral Binding Company um, that my grandfather helped to bring up. And then eventually my father and two uncles took it over in the late 70s, early 80s and you know, ran it until uh, – well, continue to run it. Uh, they actually just sold it. So I know they're oh. all very relieved Congratulations. about that. Yeah, thanks. I know yeah, the family's yeah. happy to have that off their plate. Um, but just growing up and, and listening to him talk about certain things that he would do every day and having to deal with unions and having to deal with people, um, as I got into management, all these things kind of started to come back to me a little bit and the, the dealing with the, uh, beverage component, the invoices, things like that, that's all fairly easy. Um, you know, bottles of wine don't really talk back. They don't show up late. It's, it's all pretty straightforward, black and white in front of you. It's the management of people, uh, which always presents the greatest challenge mm-hmm. because everyone is different. Everyone is at a different level of experience. Everyone's at a different level of emotional capacity and maturity. And um, 
on a, on a daily basis, that's that's consistently the toughest thing. From where I was ten years ago to now, uh, I think is is a huge you know one eighty from from understanding that and to see right because you had an early managerial experience at Bar Americaine being yep. the assistant wine director. That I, I assume that's what you're referring to back in two thousand six, right? Ten years ago, eleven years ago now. Uh, yeah, it was it was that for the first time and and making that leap from being a captain uh with a team that i'd worked with for a year into a managerial role uh was definitely a difficult transition um you know my my tendencies were to still do the job of a captain for them um but i remember my my gm uh mark shea at the time at bar american pulling me outside uh, in the middle of a service and you know saying that you you can't do their job for them they're never going to uh respect your new role if you continue to do mm. your old role. And so your role now is to make sure that they are doing their job correctly, uh, but not for you to do it for them. And, and that was probably the first lesson of, of moving up that I learned in, in terms of management things. Um, I'm sure that was a corrective that he was really happy to be giving you because usually when you're like telling someone who you're managing like hey you need to do more things and do them better and more quickly but instead to you they're like hey you need to hold off and yeah, let other people slow down let other people do their job yeah i mean my tenden- <laughs> my tendencies in any position whether it was as a, a captain or bartender uh or manager is to jump in immediately and and to be involved and to kind of feel things out in that regard i would say that most of the management lessons i learned early in my career were as a result of not ideal situations. Um, in, in a perfect world, you can walk away from any experience uh, with something, whether it was, you know, how to do something or how not to do something. Um, and so after leaving Bar American, a lot of those experiences were about how, a lot of those growth experiences were based on, um, you know, seeing how things were done and trying not to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I got to Hearth in early 2009 uh, that I, I had the opportunity to work with, with Paul Greco there uh, and Marco, but with Paul more directly in the front of the house and really um, started to hone in on some of the finer points of, of management and people and, and how to deal and with it. And now people. when you started at Hearth, you took, you took a step back. Right. Yes. In order to move forward, ultimately. But was that a hard decision for you to? I know you started at Hearth as a as a server or bartender, um, and to go from management and you were even overseeing a program before that, a wine program at Apiary, right before before Hearth. Mm-hmm. So was that? Uh, what was that like? That must have been humbling in a, in a way. It was an interesting transition. Um, I had. After leaving Bar American, had taken a, a stretch of a few different positions that um, didn't didn't make me feel like hospitality and restaurants were the path that I was going to take in life. Mm. Um, it had me question that. I thought about going into the family business, and uh, even though it didn't speak to me on a, a passionate level, I knew it was something that would be comforting um, as far as uh, having peace of mind and consistency as far as uh, salary and work for the next 25, 30, 45 years or so. Uh, and there's something nice about continuing on a family tradition, a family business, right? There is. Those were the things that were attractive to me. But at the end of the day, uh, there was nothing that I really enjoyed about that work. And I found myself, uh, when I would work there part-time, really missing um, the hands-on approach and, and the the human interactions of, of hospitality and restaurants. And so I was in a string of, of management and beverage positions that, again, weren't really uh, providing any kind of satisfaction or growth. So I, I made a decision to go back to school um, with the intention of finishing my BA, which I did not do. I got I went to big university and was immature and had a little too much fun. Um, and at the same time, go back to serving and, and bartending. And so that's when the opportunity to work at Hearth came up. And so, um, as I was telling you before we started, when Paul and I sat down to interview, his biggest question was whether or not I would be comfortable uh, not being in charge, not being responsible for day-to-day decisions. Uh, and for that period of my life, the answer was absolutely. I mean, I wasn't looking to do anything besides uh, show up, contribute as best I can, and then to, you know, go on my studies and, and see what happened. But it was it was at Hearth at that time 
with uh, Paul and Marco where, you know, this kind of uh, fire got relit and, and I saw that you could have a lot of fun and, and it was very education-driven and experience-driven and they took care of their people and, and it was just, it was all about the food, the drink, and the hospitality and uh, it totally resonated with me. Amazing. And so during that time there, do you think that um, your love for wine, I mean, Paul is such a magnetic personality, um, did that also kind of re-spark your love for, for wine uh, as well as for hospitality? Or had that kind of never, never gone away? The desire to learn more about wine and beverage had never really gone away. Uh, I guess it had kind of lie dormant um since you know since leaving bar american and the first mentor i had there adam rieger um i'd kind of bitten off more than i could chew in 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 the uh positions uh after that so getting back and and f- opening that wine list the first day at hearth and seeing uh all of those pages and all those wines i mean it was like total sensory overload Amazing. um yeah. and it provided this drive to to rededicate and to learn more um and eventually have this voice in my head which still carries with me today of you know what would paul do what would paul say if he saw things in service and and uh even as as crazy as as how things are written out on a wine list and presented um so those are are you know things that i still carry and, and certain attention to details and, and things like that so would you say he's like an early mentor or mid a mid career mentor in a way or just a, an it's a real inspiration uh, i think a little bit of both um mentor for for sure um definitely the most influential um mm-hmm. on my approach to service and hospitality and and beverage and um you know even the way you make selections and look at producers and uh, approach tasting wine um you know having this matrix in your head of quality and price and, um, you know, uh, grape specific, uh, character or terroir character, things like that. Uh, really looking at it in a, um, a technical broken down matter, not technical as in like the court approach, but, um, you know, fitting into these different pieces. Yeah. I, I mean, I re- I like that, uh, approach as well because, you know, something I would think about is a tasting wine, you taste like a suave and you're like, all right, if I'm going to have a suave on the list, I've got to have the best one for the price for my guests. And, uh, you know, and there's so many out there and sure. Sometimes I guess you make decisions that are, uh, a little bit more practical where you're like, all right, you know, I'm ordering from this person anyway. Maybe I like that suave, just a, a scotch more, or it costs just a you know a dollar less a bottle. So, but I'll still order from the other one because it's still a good wine. But trying to really maximize that, it sounds like that's what he was doing, like the best wine for the best price. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And there were there were certain instances, um, you know, one of one of his approaches is that you don't typically just have one of something. You provide a, a spectrum for people to. Uh, to mm. taste and to take notice of. So if we ever put together uh, a selection or, or an area of wine that wasn't necessarily covered previously, you wouldn't just take one uh, red from the Jura or Arbois. You would, you would uh, Jura Savoie, you would, you know, put together four or five selections that, that show the range of wines and different grapes and things like that. And it's something that, uh, you know, is, is important for me, uh, both as a buyer and consumer and, and, you know, uh, educator, um, for staff and for us, especially is to make sure that if we're going to talk about Sherry, that we have the whole spectrum mm-hmm. to offer so that you can take a guest or take your staff through, um, you know, all the different styles and, and, and what is represented from that region to just have one of something for the sake of having it. It's not, you know, to each his own, but that's not how, you know, we do it. Yeah. And now your next, uh, so during your time there, you did, you did change your roles, right? You moved up in, uh, you did, from what I remember, you also uh, built a lot of the cocktails and the bar program there. Uh, what was the progression like there? Yeah, there was uh, a lot of opportunity um, offered and, and afforded to me in my time there. Um, quickly after starting, I, I realized that, um, you know, the family business was definitely not for me, um, that 
However like, exciting the laminating paper B2B sales go, exactly. like, it well, sounds very alluring. I did learn to drive a forklift, which is something that you really, you know, you always need in life to be able to drive a forklift, move crates, things yeah. like that. Did it beep when you went reverse? Absolutely. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. I knocked so. over a few things the first time. <laughs> um, but I realized that, that the hospitality industry was really where my passion lied and that, that someone would pay me to do this job uh, was, was always a, a big lure for me. Um, when when I was in school still at the time, um, Paul had offered to to have me work at Tawari's Village, which I wasn't really into because it was much later nights. Uh, and then some of the other Tawars opened up an opportunity to be on those teams um, were were offered. But I was I was very clear on what I wanted, which was to oversee the wine list at Hearth eventually. And so. Um, the first step after being uh, a captain there was to move behind the bar, and then shortly thereafter, both uh, bartenders left. Um, one of them in particular, uh, Vince Favela, was a huge influence on my uh, bar and cocktail knowledge. Uh, to this day, he remains one of the two most knowledgeable bartenders I've ever worked with, um, and, and he provided me a, a good foundation and allowed me to get comfortable behind that space mm-hmm. before he took off. And then... Uh, myself and our operations manager, David Flaherty, oversaw the spirits and cocktail list for about a year and a half there until uh, a management opportunity presented itself. And in that time, I also did some uh, florissant work there on the occasional Friday and Saturday night and um, really had my hands in a lot of different aspects of the operation. Yeah. It's amazing how in the restaurant industry, I feel like people move so frequently that if you just show up and do your job and do a good job every day eventually there's going to be an opening for you to move up just it it it, ha- it just kind of happens that way. you're like okay who's who's still here and is good at their job oh like let's move them up especially it's if true. there's like some like outward showing of like enthusiasm or interest in you know in moving up but uh there there are opportunities in this industry just by staying where you are a lot of t- a lot of times yeah and i i think that is not the most uh, frequent approach by a lot of people. Um, one, showing up and doing your job, uh, as I've learned, is is not, you know, first and foremost on most people's minds, which is an amazing thing considering it's how you make your living. You don't show up or you just, you know, it's pretty inconsistent. That's that's one of the things I've learned yeah. in this hotel space. But um, oh, is it is it union? Is it a union situation? It's not union, but because we have such a large staff and we have mm-hmm. so many meal periods staffing for the early like breakfast breakfast lunch dinner right but staffing especially for breakfast um is turned into a major challenge and so we'll we'll hire someone and we'll say you know just so you know the call time on a daily basis is 6 a.m um they say yeah of course i can do that i want to work ams and um you know a weekend two weeks in they're showing up half hour late 45 minutes late no call no show so there's there's um there's a lot of different things that that (laughs) Uh, you know, present those challenges again. Just getting back to the management of people, um, but I got off track. Cause it's yeah, pretty I mean, usual. I, on that note, uh, it, turn, it seems like that Roberta's has turned into a construction site. So, but I think it's a good time for us to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back more with uh, Jared Roth, who is the beverage director of both Fowler and Wells and the bar room at the gorgeous Beekman Hotel. Right after this. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Carrie Diamond, host of Radio Cherry Bomb, the show about women and food on Heritage Radio Network. 
Tune in on Thursdays at 1 p.m. to hear interviews with the most interesting women in the world of food. Support our show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. All right, we're back with Jared Roth, who runs the beverage program at Fowler and Wells and the bar room at the Beekman Hotel. Beautiful, beautiful restaurants with uh, outstanding uh, beverage programs. Um, I, I wanted to ask you on your on the first page of your wine list, you have a quote from William Shakespeare, of all people. Uh, good company, good wine, good welcome can make good people. Um, can you tell us about the inspiration for the quote, why you have it on, on the wine list? Of course. Uh, admittedly, I've only read two Shakespeare books in my life, so I'm by no means uh, an authority on uh, good old Bill. But I found the quote to be very uh, applicable to what we do and to the space itself, as uh, if you've been into the space um, the, the feeling is that as soon as you walk in, you feel you're transported back to the Victorian era um, of, of London or of old New York, where uh, if you looked around the room, you could see um, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt or any of the robber barons uh, having something to drink and smoking a cigar and talking about the markets and things of that nature. Uh, it's a very um, uh, transportational space, and I think that the idea of providing company and and food and drink and revelry Mm -hmm. uh is something that can put people in a really positive and jovial frame of mind and so that's kind of where uh the quote the 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 impetus for choosing the quote uh comes from is is to kind of just get people in that in that joyous frame of mind for being in the space and, and drinking and eating and having fun yeah i like this aspect can make good people because uh something we were chatting about earlier but i fully believe like you can you have the ability if someone's had a crummy day to to make it an incrementally or maybe significantly better day by by just by like you know a smile and something delicious for sure um the the you know the old adage when when as you said when we were talking is that if someone comes in and, and you're reading the body language and they're they're miserable maybe they got uh let go of or they got into a fight or the day's just not going as they planned um, there are opportunities for us to to change that and mm-hmm. to um, you know provide a positive experience uh, whether the service is really engaging and talkative or you just you just go about the service and execute it uh, properly and then provide you know some really good food and drink and maybe a, a specific pairing really hits it on the head for that person and they're immediately brought back to a, a trip that they took years ago to Piemonte or uh, to the south of France or something like that and so they feel transported to a time of pure happiness mm. and you know in that moment uh, they realize that everything is going to be okay or that at least in that moment um, they're happier than they were five minutes ago and so uh, in that regard we've we've you know, mission accomplished. Yeah. Now, I guess this is a, a show about wine and beverage. So I guess we should talk about that too. You know, I'm, I really love your, your wine list. One of the things that, that I noticed, uh, uh, especially in the by the glass se- selections is, uh, a focus on some New York state wines. And what I thought, I don't know if, if this is what went through your head and I'd like to find out is, did you do that because it's a hotel, you're getting a lot of people coming internationally or even across the country? Maybe you want to show, hey, this is kind of what we do in New York, too. Is that is that where that's come from? That's that's definitely one of the drivers behind it. Um, there's, there's a couple of different factors, though. Um, getting back to um, my uh, assistant beverage director, uh, Brooks, she's a huge proponent of uh, New York wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and was very adamant uh, about having them on the list from day one. Um, it, it took a little while, but I think we have five or even maybe six now. Um, also, coming from Hearth and, and working with Paul, um, there was always a focus on showing off what the state was capable of. And, and he's such a big fan of Riesling. For sure. And that's, I think, probably, in my opinion, the best thing we can do in New York State, right? I, I think it's the best white wine uh, that we make as a country is New York State Riesling. Wow. I would I would take that, some Herman Wiemer, uh Magdalena Vineyard over anything else. Um, so good. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And they I just mean, purchased a big, 
big plot of land, right? Um, or an old winery. I can't I can't remember the details, but they're they are in an expansion mode, and I think that's good news for everyone. Yeah, Fred and Oscar are always pushing forward, and I, I think are the drivers of uh, the Finger Lakes in general, but of of New York wine as a whole. Uh, but for us, we wanted to do both. As you mentioned, we have uh, a hotel, um, lots of international guests coming through, lots of people from other parts of the United States who may not be exposed to New York wine coming through. And while I don't think that everything that the state produces is great, I do think that the Finger Lakes and the North Fork do have a handful of producers which are absolutely worth highlighting and showing off. Um, We want to show off some different styles, some wines that were more uh, terroir-driven versus stylistically or winemaker-driven. I think like the Channing Daughters Rosé is a great example of of, uh, winemaker-driven wine. Uh, James Christopher Tracy is a partner and winemaker there. And the wines, um, I was first exposed to those years ago at Blue Water Grill, but the wines that he makes, I think, are hmm. totally, totally fascinating. Um, some of them in a terroir way, terroir-driven way. But I also think that he has a very creative mind and and blends certain things together that that just work in a very harmonious way. And so the uh, Rosato de Cabernet Sauvignon was something that we really liked and had a cool story behind it. Um, and again, at the end of the day, when when tasting and looking at that price matrix. Uh, it represents a place. Um, it represents a, a style or a personality. Um, it's priced right, and it's damn delicious. That is um, good. I, I like that he also pushes the envelope, does a lot of experiments, and is always trying something new. Right? I, I remember, I don't know if it's still this case. You, you've been in a buying position uh, more recently than I have, but uh, I remember, I think one year he did six different rosés, like a couple, like th- maybe three like single grapes and then three blends or something like that. Is he, he, makes, he makes a lot of different wines. He always, not always, but he usually does like a Ramato style. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he's always doing some, some um, you know, Friulian whites like the Meditazione, uh, and, and some interesting reds where he's blending Lemberger and, and Merlot. Um, so it's, again, he's, he's like you said, pretty, always pushing the envelope cool. and some creative stuff. Um, and we also are, are huge fans of the Bedell Cellars. Uh, their Blanc de Blanc from the North Fork, I think, is a great representation of of what North Fork fruit can do, um, you know, when, when gone through the classical method and, and shows, you know, great salinity and, and representation of being situated between two different, you know, parts of the Atlantic. Yeah. And what, so what was your approach to the rest of the list? I mean, other than just like page after page of truly delicious wine that I'm excited to drink, uh, <laughs> how, how did you approach? You have a huge champagne selection. Um, I want to also ask you about your dessert wines that's on my mind because that's something that I've always found very hard to sell. Uh, let's tackle that first because that sure. seems like an easier question. You have quite a bit of like sweet and fortified wines, which uh, I think is, is brave. I think is awesome. Uh, I found it hard to sell as someone who's selling wine, but I would ter- certainly drink uh, you know any of these wines that are on your list. Uh, why, was that something of a focus? Is that something of a passion of yours? Uh, it's both. I think it... it- is necessary to provide the ultimate well-rounded dining experience, which is ideally, um, you know, a cocktail first, then into a bottle of champagne, white wine, red wine, uh, and then you finish with uh, sweet wine, and then you have a digestif, whether an Amari or a Calvados or something like that. So, I want to eat with you because that sounds like fun. That sounds... <laughs> Go full circle and, you know, it's indulgent, but sometimes you just got to cut loose and, and run the spectrum. Um, and are people are people doing that? Are people eating in that in that way? Or maybe I, not as as uh, indulgent as that. But you know, we we have people who come in and they, um, you know, we'll do some version of that. You know, Sauterne I think is is the most recognizable name mm-hmm. on any sweet wine list. Um, I'm more partial to uh, Alsace, Baron Alsace, uh, uh, you know, the sweeties from Riesling, and then sweets from Chenin Blanc. I like the acid component. I think mm-hmm. it, it provides a little bit more lift and freshness on the wines. Um, but again, just as for me, uh, though it may be repetitive, all roads kind of lead back to my experience at Hearth. I think that a well-rounded beverage program doesn't just offer great 
bottles of wine, but it offers great glass offerings. And what you offer by the glass needs to be a snapshot uh, of what is in the rest of the list. Um, so if, if someone has this great experience with cocktails and then a bottle of wine and the food is fantastic and then they get the dessert and you only have one sweet wine to offer, to me that it, it kind of, you know, the experience just drops off a cliff. Right. Um, and so whether or not anyone ever comes in and orders that uh, rare Pedro Jimenez for 100 a pour, um, it's not going to go bad. I don't really give a shit. We just want to have it on yeah, there. Yeah, it's not going to go bad. You could probably have one bottle and... That's, that's be good for a while. Indestructible. Yeah. Right? Same thing with the Madeiras. Yeah. Um, though we do we do sell a fair amount of of Madeira in the space. It feels like a good space to drink Madeira for sure. It's that old timey feel. Yeah. Oh, that, to- that totally makes sense. They have some cool old Madeiras. Oh, that's super exciting. Okay, so for the rest of the list, what was what was the approach? I mean, it's uh, just tons of great wine. A little bit of a focus on old world, but certainly some amazing new world wines as well. Um, how did you put this together? In in conversations uh, with Tom and Brian uh, Hunt, who's our uh, executive chef of the hotel, uh, and then with other members of uh, the crafted team in, in moving into this project, the the space itself really dictated what we were going to do, uh, both from a culinary standpoint and from a beverage standpoint. Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense to be serving this classic stock and sauce-based food with, um, you know, Argentinian wines and Chilean wines. Right. And Australia, they all have their place in the beverage and food world. Uh, but for us, everything felt very classic, very old school, very old world driven. So we wanted to make sure that we focused on the classic regions of Europe, um, Austria and German whites. Uh, some reds just for fun, mm-hmm. um, and then Northern Rhone and Burgundy and Bordeaux, um, and then you know some other pockets of of France, uh, Spain, Italy, um, a lot of Northern Italian selections. Great Burgundy selection too. Just Thanks, like, man. And like really cool, you can find some older vintages. So that's like I love stuff like this, like the Michel Gano 08 Cote de Bone. Uh, just like the bone for, you know, a hundred bucks to find something from like a great producer has some age to it. uh, And, you know, maybe I'm not usually spending a hundred bucks on when I go out to, you know, drink wine, but like, that's so cool. I'm going to spend a little bit more because you don't find stuff like that around. Right, It's got some age and it's got, uh, you know, a great producer behind it. We were very fortunate when we went to open the restaurant that we, we had some reserve wine that was purchased years ago and then put into storage from oh, um, cool. Craft Bar. And then, though it was not a good thing, we unfortunately uh, had to close Colicchio and Sons uh, in the fall of last year. Mm-hmm. Over time, between Ryan and uh, Patrick Bennett, they put together a phenomenal cellar. And we were able to kind of look at that and pick and choose what we wanted to round out what had already been purchased and and planned out. Mm. So we had access to a lot of old Piedmontese, a lot of Riesling with some age, a lot of, um, you know, Burgundy gems here and there. And then as a whole, the approach as far as pricing structure uh, was to make it accessible for anyone that would walk in, whether it was a, a family visiting from the UK or from New Zealand and was comfortable spending 50 or 60 bucks on a bottle or a guy from Europe who wanted to come in and drink, uh, you know, some blue chip Burgundy or some uh, first growth Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is there for both. And that's Um, the hard thing to do. Like, uh, you know, you're starting a brand new restaurant to be able to, here comes the construction, uh, to be able to have a deep cellar with, you know, with, with good vintages and then, and see like on, on some of these like, cool finds the, the markup is you know is pretty pretty reasonable um uh that that's so hard so what a treat that you're able to work with that uh, yeah the goal the goal at the end of the day is is in an ideal world to have a bottle on every single table yeah um i would always rather have a 75 or 80 dollar bottle on every table than four or five five hundred dollar bottles uh i think that the domino effect uh, always takes place when people see and they walk into a restaurant and the first five tables they see all have a bottle or they all have a giant steak for two or a seafood tower. 
that those things influence the way you purchase when you go to sit down because now your eyes are peering back and it's kind of that keeping up with the Joneses mentality. I want what they're having over there. That looks awesome. Let's do that. You know, as we're talking, I'm putting, I'm just like putting some like restaurant history puzzle pieces together. And, uh, I think that this is accurate, but correct me if I'm wrong. So Tom Calicchio and Paul Greco worked together at Gramercy Tavern. Correct. It actually, it goes back a little further, but they did work together there along with Marco uh, Canora. Um, and Marco worked at Gramercy Tavern, too. Correct. And then Tom opened up Kraft, and Marco worked at Kraft. Correct. And then Marco and Paul, uh, Marco left Kraft, and Marco and Paul opened up Parth Mar- together and had a, a pretty s- substantial run there. Um, but even going further back, uh, Tom cooked at Gotham with Alfred Portale uh, in two different iterations, I think and I, my dates and timeline may be off here, but I believe he cooked there in, in the mid-'80s when Gotham opened and was offered a soup position and then left. I believe he went to the Quilted Giraffe and then came back to Gotham before going to open Mondrian and then to open uh, Gramercy with Danny. Mm. And at Gramercy, there was this pretty incredible... A uh, lineup of people who passed through both the front of the house and the back of the house. Um, I mean, our executive chef Brian worked there. Uh, Marco and Paul met there. Uh, Robert Bohr worked there. Fred Dexheimer worked there. Jonathan Benno. Um, and then moving on to uh, Claudia Fleming was the pastry chef there. I mean, she's like one of the great American pastry chefs. Yeah. Um, and then moving on to Kraft, that kitchen. Uh, David Chang worked there. Um, Akhtar Nawab worked there. Cisha worked there. Who with Tom created and opened up the witchcraft brand. Um, so it's, it's, so it's kind a of pretty cool lineage lead back to Gramercy and craft and like those, those restaurants and those, it's amazing. Yeah. As far as this world goes. And you've worked for a lot of these people separately. I mean, is there some like through line, something that they all do that, uh, makes sense or have they all really kind of like gone their separate ways with their, with their approaches to, to restaurants? I, I think they've all kind of taken their own personal approach to things. Um, I, when I left Hearth, there were really only two places that I was interested in working, or two groups. One of them was at Gramercy specifically, not even really for Union Square, though it's a phenomenal company. Um, but at Gramercy specifically, and then at Craft or with Crafted. Um, I had, I, and, and Gotham as well. I, I had been fortunate enough to uh, spend the summer of 2013 um, working on the floor there as a psalm while they transitioned um, when Eric Zillier was leaving mm-hmm. and the current uh, wine director, Heidi, was coming in. Um, uh, was able to work with her and, and you know be part of that transition, which was a really phenomenal experience. Um, and then left to do, to do Harvest, and then they offered me the service director position before leaving, uh, which I took. Uh, but... It eventually led me to to River Park, which was part of Crafted. And uh, I guess getting back to your question, the thing that Hearth and and Crafted really spoke to me uh, about, and and Gramercy as well, though to a lesser extent because I never worked there, was they all take care of their people really well. Um, And not just their managers or upper managers, but their staff as a whole from dishwasher porter to sommelier to bartender to GMs and and everything in between. Uh, They're companies that that pride themselves on making sure their people are satisfied. Uh, Because as one of Gramercy's tenants, if your staff is satisfied and taken care of, then your guests in turn will be satisfied and taken care of. Can you think of something... that is more, uh, you know, an experience where you saw like, oh, that's that's really good taking care of the people. Like, it's, is it just like being nice to them and treating them well, or is there something beyond that? I, I think on a daily basis, it's just general kindness and, and comfort, knowing, making, allowing your staff to know that they will show up to work every day. Um, with a safe environment to be mm-hmm. in, not just physically safe from uh, harm, but mentally safe as well from harassment and things of that nature. Um, making sure that your staff knows that you have their back on a daily level um, through guest experience, guest interactions, 
unfortunately, there are guests who uh, feel that they are better than the staff and they're condescending and rude. And I'm sure you've dealt with it in your time in restaurants as well. Um, and, and whether right or wrong, it's important to step forward and say, like, you know, you can't speak to my guys like this. You can't speak yeah. to people in general, but not, not to this crew. Um, so on a daily level, I think that's really important, and it provides your staff uh, with a sense of comfort. Making sure that your checks go through every week is huge. Um, yeah. I've worked at places and have had friends who work at places where, um, you know, the check doesn't go through for a couple of weeks, and it's it's a dicey situation. I mean, that's kind of a writing on the wall thing you should get out when you start to see that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, going back to your, like, treating, not treating people well. I remember it's happened more when I was at Bobo, but... Uh, someone might treat a server very poorly, and then I'd come over wearing a suit as a sommelier, and they'd be like, "Oh, what's going on?" And, like, be try to be really cool. I'm like, no, yeah, like the server is ac- actually uh, has way more experience than I do. Is you know is you know better at what she does than I am, and is making more money than I am. Plus, just don't treat anyone poorly. Don't uh, be a dick. Don't be a dick. That's rule number rule number one. Um, so you, you were kind of, uh, you're speaking a little bit about some, you know, I, I, I've heard from anyone who works in a, a hotel that it's hard to, um, uh, to, to staff for, you know, breakfast and, uh, but what about, what about young sommeliers? I've heard some grumblings from a couple of people that, uh, there's like a new crop of sommeliers. I think we're about the same age mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, but like this new crop of sommeliers, maybe some of them aren't as, uh, you know, uh, focused or ambitious, or maybe they just want to like move up quickly. I mean, as someone who's like really put their time in, uh, at some places and even took a step back to eventually take, you know, a step forward, uh, which seems really smart to me, uh, you know what? What advice do you have to to young sommeliers? Are you seeing people that that kind of have like this millennial itch to like move quickly? Or I, I think there's always uh, what I've noticed uh, going back a few years is the the idea that uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, this next position is going to be the the right position for me. And mm-hmm. what I really learned um, from taking a step back and going to Hearth was that oftentimes it's about the company. Um, and and who you're going to work for more so than what the job title is itself. Because I, you know, I was 26, 27 uh, when I left Bar American and took a beverage director position in management thinking that I was prepared and I had, you know, done this for a year and I can do this and this is the next position for me. And um, the company you know, the company was not good. It was, they didn't take care of their people. Um, they weren't fun to work with. They weren't, uh, even if they weren't fun, they were not, uh, didn't provide any kind of inspiration. Um, so it, 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 it became clear to me that, uh, it, it's more about, you know, the company itself or, or the restaurant as a whole than just the position. And it's one of the reasons why I went to work at Gotham for a year, even though it wasn't, in a beverage capacity, it was in a service capacity, was because it's a great restaurant um, and has a, an incredible history to it and an incredible influence on the New York and national um, landscape of, of food and hospitality. Um, that, you know, that, that's a huge thing for me is, is, is picking the right company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you're working, once again, with, one of, uh, with a Gotham alum. We have, right. we have a few Gotham alums. Uh, Brandon Lynn, who is the director of operations at Gotham for seven years, is now our director of food and beverage for the hotel, uh, which is really fantastic to work with him. Stephen Bloom, who's our uh, assistant general manager, uh, was a longtime captain at Gotham and even had a quick cup of coffee at Hearth for uh, a few months. Um, and uh, Julia Griesman, who's uh, one of our food and beverage managers, also a former Gothamite uh, as well. So I say it all the time, but it, even in like the New York restaurant world, which is such... There's so many restaurants. I don't know how many tens of thousands of restaurants there are in New York. In the in the really good restaurants, like the ones that all the ones that you've worked at, uh, it's such a small world. Like you, I mean, you see how many people you're working with now who you've worked with in the past, and For that's sure. how you. <clears throat> that's ultimately how you uh, can live or die by the, in this industry by the the relationships you have, the job you do while you're there, and recognizing that it's a small world and don't be a dick. 
Don't be a dick. Don't burn bridges. Uh, you know, treat people kindly because, again, you never know um, you're going to walk into a place for job application or for an interview and you're going to sit down in front of someone that you told to go, you know, F off. Can we say fuck on the radio? Yeah. Yeah. This someone you told to go fuck off. Um, we're, in, we're at Roberta's. Yeah, so we can say whatever the fuck we want. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, we're going to have pizza after this, right? Totally. A couple of weeks ago, we were sitting down and had had some pizza with a guest, and the server had a t-shirt on that said, fuck Roberta's. <laughs> oh, the sweet irony of being here. Isn't that great? Uh, Jared, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Good uh, first experience on the radio. It's your first one. Yeah. You killed it. You got to have you back. Thanks, dude. Um, guys, if you haven't been, I highly recommend going to Fowler and Wells and, uh, to the bar room and seeing the most beautiful, I think the most beautiful bar and in, in most beautiful hotel, uh, that I've ever been to and having some of, uh, Jared's delicious drinks and, uh, the great food over there as well. Um, I do want to let you guys know that our next show, uh, is not going to be live. Usually the show, uh, uh, airs live at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, but we are going to, uh, tape it later tonight and we'll air it next week. And it will be with Ian Dagata, who, uh, who is an educator and author. Uh, he writes for Venice. Um, he wrote a great book on native indigenous uh, Italian grapes that I have all highlighted and a little bit tattered up because I keep referencing it. I love, uh, I love his work. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and if you ever want to reach out, if you have any, uh, suggestions, questions, uh, guest suggestions, you can reach out to me at Joe at anonawine.com. That's a N N O N A wine.com. And, uh, why not subscribe? You could subscribe to the show and then you can just get it automatically uploaded to whatever you use to listen to podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher. Stitcher is a great way to do it too. Um, you can try that out. And, uh, also I think one, one last thing, become a member for heritage. That's a good thing to do. I think it's tax deductible. Support public radio, support public radio. Thank you, Jared. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, I want to thank, uh, Vitar who, uh, produced the show today. Uh, everyone at, uh, heritage radio network and Haley crane who helped out with this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been in the drink. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.